As we pray together, let's pray for Clara and Michael. How's she doing? Is she good? That's the plan. Yeah, if they don't make an earlier uh, appearance, then the plan is Friday. Friday, twins. Goodness, three-year-old and twins. How's your golf game? Two-year-old and twins. Gone. Golf game's gone. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Completely gone. So, yeah, it's a good thing to give him rounds, Don, if he can't use them. That's really, yeah, it works out well, doesn't it? So, yeah, darn. How's your, how's your sleep game? That's another subject, isn't it? So, yeah, that's, yeah, well, all right. So, so let's make sure we do that and pray for Claire this week, if you would, as the delivery is planned for Friday, if not earlier. Let's pray together. God, we're just so glad to be in a beautiful place, to be able to worship you, to sing of your amazing grace, to know that our chains are gone by that grace, that you have set us free, and those you set free are free indeed. So glad to be here, Father. So glad to be back here. So glad to be with these friends, these sisters and brothers in Christ. Uh, Janet and I just are so grateful to be here, to love them, and to love you together. Pray, Father God, for Claire today. I pray that you'll comfort her, encourage her, help her and Michael to just to feel your presence and your peace this week. Guide the doctors and the attendings and just make all of this work exactly as it should. Father, I pray for these babies to be completely well, for her to be completely well, Father, for you to just be glorified in and through it all. As we thank you for the mystery of life and new life and eternal life, you are such a good God. And we love you and thank you and praise you. Help us to apply your word to our lives today. Help us to live lives you can bless. Father, help us to do that, which will enable us to be the people you dream for us to be. I pray for me and us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's great to see you. It's great to be back. I am under duress today. I just want you to know that on several levels. First of all, I'm following my brother-in-law, which is never a good thing. You know, you can't choose your brother-in-law. Have you noticed that? Choose a lot of things, can't choose your brother-in-law. If I were to choose my brother-in-law, I would choose Tom Copeland. Those of you that were here last week know what I mean. Tom's amazing. He is, he's, so he's the dean of the Honors College at Hart and Simmons. He's married to Janet's younger sister, and he did chapel while I was in Israel last week, and everything I heard, it was just fantastic. Did he tell you his rules for golf, though? No? Oh, well, yeah, Tom's, he should have done that, yeah. Tom and I used to play a lot of golf together back in the day, back, way back in the day, and Tom invented some rules for golf, which made the game so much more enjoyable. I'm sorry he didn't share this with you. Yeah, for instance, Tom decided golf is a land game, Correct like baseball, football, basketball. So if there's any water in the way, that's the fault of the people that designed the course. That's not your fault. I mean, you know, if they get water on the basketball court, they come mop it up, right? So if a ball goes in the lake, that's the fault of the people that put the lake there. So you've already lost a ball. The last thing you're going to do is take a penalty for that because that's, that's not your fault that there was water there. See how that works? Golf is, a, is played on a round planet. So any ball deemed close to the ball to the hole shall be deemed to have gone in the hole. Because over time, it may take years, but the ball is eventually going to roll by Earth's ro rotational force, and you don't want to hold up play for three years, so you just consider it good. See how this golf, for instance, the laws of golf cannot supersede the laws of gravity. So a ball that goes over the hole shall be deemed to have gone in the hole. See how this works? So. I'm sorry I didn't share that with y'all. It was just really, I thought, very creative and made game golf so much more enjoyable than it had been previously for me, which still wasn't all that enjoyable, but be that as it may. And then the week before that, my wife was here speaking. And you know how that is. When I get up after Janet, you look so disappointed, and I understand that. And so, so it's tough. And then on top of that, sleep is apparently an option just for some of us around here today. So um, next time you go with Charlotte Kimberlin on a trip, 
No, it's going to be amazing. We went to see the promise yesterday in Glen Rose. Spent the day in Glen Rose. She found these museums they had no idea existed and these incredible places for lunch and dinner and all this stuff. And the promise was incredible. The guy playing Jesus should be on Broadway. I mean, wow. One of the best voices I've ever heard. It was just an incredible production. But we got back at one this morning. So you've heard about the guy that dreamed he was preaching and woke up and he was, right? Well, that, that may be me up here, so we'll see. We'll see. So uh, those of us that were on that just went home, changed clothes, and came back to chapel, I think, is how that worked, you know. So next time you plan a trip, Charlotte, we're in, but I'm going to sleep ahead. I'm going to get, get, kind of uh, store up some sleep a little bit. So anyhow, so, but the other reason we're under duress is we're on a tough subject today. We're walking through the Sermon on the Mount, as you know. One of the good reasons to preach through passages of Scripture is that it makes you talk about things you wouldn't talk about otherwise makes you deal with subjects you just probably wouldn't deal with unless the text made you do it. And that's what we're up against today. We've been walking through the sermon for some time now. We've looked at the Beatitudes. We've looked at Jesus' claim that you're salt and light, which is an incredible promise. We've learned how important it is to live by God's Word because it will never pass away. And then we've talked about how to deal with anger and, and forgiveness and pardon and all of that. And now we come to Jesus' statement about morality. I'm not going to set it up as I typically would. I'm not going to try to convince you that you need to hear what Jesus says on this subject. We have children here with us today, and so I'm just going to know that you know where our culture's headed in terms of sexual morality. I mean, examples in movies, examples in TV shows, what you can watch on the internet, what's out there, you, you know the issue. You know the need. You don't need me to talk about that. But I will ask you, as we look at Jesus' word, is there a place in your life where you need his word in the context of integrity? Is there a thing you're wrestling with? Is there a place where you want to be more the person God wants you to be? Well, if you're like the rest of us, of course there is. We're all fallen people, right? We all are. Me too. So let's see what Jesus says, and then let's see how his word can literally transform our lives. So we're in Matthew chapter 5, and now we come to the place where Jesus says, Matthew 5, 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Well, this is the seventh commandment. I mean, you're familiar with this, obviously. Every, everyone that heard Jesus preach this understood what he was talking about. But let me say something about that for just a second. Back in the book of Genesis, Scripture says, God blessed Adam and even said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Sexuality was God's idea. God didn't have to create us the way he did. Didn't have to create the mechanism for filling the earth the way he did. That's his plan. That's his intention for marriage. That's a good thing. This Puritan idea that sexuality was intended only to procreate children is just not biblical. That's a gift for marriage. That's God's intention. But all gifts can be misused, right? Someone can give you a car, and you can drive it to your office, your home, and you can stay within the speed laws and all of that, and all is well. Or you can wreck it and kill somebody. You can do that. In fact, when I had foot surgery a couple of years ago, I had to be on pain pills for a week. I was really grateful for the pain pills but we're in an opioid epidemic in our country as a result. Well, it's the same with sexuality. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, God made it very clear what he thought about sexuality, sexual expression outside of marriage. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. Now, that doesn't mean that today that's intended to be taken as a literal law. All right, that's not the point. That was a law back in the establishment of Israel, but the principle is clear that God reserves sexual expression for marriage. 
That's the clear principle that Jesus is working with. But Jesus takes it much further. Back in their day, there was this kind of legalistic sort of approach to all of this. Jesus says, I tell you, and it's emphatic in the Greek, anyone, and that doesn't matter who it is, doesn't matter if they're a priest or a rabbi or Sanhedrin or whatever they are, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So when Jesus says, looks at a woman lustfully, we really need to get this. What he's talking about is the intentional, deliberate decision to look at a woman lustfully. It's not the first look, it's the second look, if that makes sense. It's not noticing an attractive person. It's going beyond noticing. And you know what I mean. That's what he's talking about. And Scripture is clear about this. I love what Aristotle said. What it is a crime for a person to do, it is a crime for a person to think. How different would our world be if everybody stopped sin at thinking? Think about that. How much crime would be gone? How much pain would be gone? How much suffering would be alleviated if everybody stopped the sin at the thought? That's Aristotle's point. Job 31.1, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. That's God's intention for us. I love what Martin Luther said. If your head is made of butter, don't sit near the fire. <laughs> and we all know those areas where our heads are made of butter, right? It may not be today's subject, but it might be next week's subject. If there's a place in your life where you're routinely tempted, where you don't routinely do well in responding to the temptation, don't sit near that fire is the idea, right? And then Luther said it this way. You cannot keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. Right? So God's intention for us is clear. What do we do about it? Well, Jesus goes on. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than from your whole body to be thrown into hell. And then he adds this. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, don't worry. I know you know this, but Jesus is speaking, obviously, metaphorically. But what you may not know is there was a way of teaching in Jesus' day called rabbinic hyperbole. The rabbis used exaggeration to make a point, rabbinic hyperbole. Jesus says, why do you pay attention to the speck in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the log in your eye? Well, a log can't fit in your eye. He's not speaking literally. He's not speaking physically. He's speaking metaphorically, hyperbolically to make a point, right, is the idea. Not every, the Bible is literally true, but not everything in the Bible is meant to be taken literally as true. Jesus isn't a door. Jesus isn't a vine. Here he's using rabbinic hyperbole. The eye, the right eye, was considered more valuable than the left, and the right hand more valuable than the left. That was just the culture of the day. Even today, when you go to the Holy Land, you don't wave at people with your left hand. That's an obscenity. It's just the culture. The right hand was considered more valuable than the left. Now, Jesus, again, understands. You can gouge out your right eye and still lust with your left. You can, still, you can cut off your right hand and still sin with your left hand. That's not his point. His point is be proactive to do whatever it takes to get at the source of the problem. That's his point, whatever the problem is. 
be proactive to do whatever it takes to get at the source of the issue. So to talk about that for just a second. 1 Corinthians 6.18, this is the negative side. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Flee, present tense imperative. Continually flee from sexual immorality. That means different things for different people. When I was teaching a men's Bible study at Park City's Baptist Church, we were on this subject. And the next week, a man came up to me and told me that he had been close to an affair with a woman at his office. And he'd been going down that road, step by step, in his mind, in his thoughts, in his fantasies, in his even in the way that he was speaking to her and relating to her. And after this subject, he asked to be assigned to a different office. It wasn't her fault. He was her superior, but nonetheless, he asked to be assigned to a different office. Now, does that solve everything? No, because he could be tempted by a woman in the next office, right? But he did what he had to do proactively to keep this from going where it was going to go. There's a software called Covenant Eyes that I really recommend to you. There's several of them. This is the one that's been recommended to me as the best. It's a software that you put on your computer and an accountability partner's computer. And the way it works is any website you visit, they can see. And any website they visit, you can see. It's called Covenant Eyes. We did this with our sons when they were in high school. I've recommended it to men over the years. If the internet is a challenge for you, be proactive. Do what it takes. If there's another area in your life, and it may not be sexuality, but if there's another area of integrity where you're struggling right now, get in front of that right now because it's only going to get worse. Tell somebody. Find an accountability partner. Gouge out the eye. Cut off the hand. Do whatever it takes to get in front of this. Years ago, I heard a pastor say, sin will always take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. Always. And if right now you're thinking that doesn't apply to you, you're being lied to by the enemy himself. If you think you're the exception, you're about to find out you're not. If you discovered, if a doctor told you you had cancer in your body, would you decide, you know, I'm just going to blow that off. I can handle it. I can deal with it later. I'm not going to get worse. Would that be your response? Well, we're talking about spiritual cancer, emotional cancer. Flee sexual immorality. Do whatever it takes to be proactive. Now, on the positive side, Paul says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. It's not enough to stop doing wrong things. What we really have to do is replace them with right things. Sexual immorality is the wrong answer to a right question. What the person's really seeking is intimacy or being known or being loved or being cared about or something. Find the right way to meet that need as opposed to the wrong way. Look for the right way to build the right relationships, godly relationships. If you're, in a, if you're married, counseling at this point is critical. If there's a pattern in your heart or your life or your spouse, I really urge you to get help. Just like you wouldn't treat a cancer by yourself. You wouldn't break your arm and set it yourself. Really encourage you. There's no stigma in that. That's doing the right thing. That's like taking a broken arm to the doctor. That's exactly the right thing to do. 
but be proactive and positive about this. If you're struggling with your thought life, fill your thoughts with good things. Worship, read scripture, spend time on, on uh, spiritual blogs, do things in podcasts that can fill your mind with the word of God. Replace the bad with the good. Don't just kick the bad out because as Jesus said in this parable, someone kicked out a demon and it came back and the house was open and swept, but there was nothing there. And then seven more came back was the idea. It's not, a, it, what we're not, it's not legalism. We're not talking about stopping doing bad things. We're talking about stopping doing bad things for the sake of doing good things, for the sake of thinking about or doing or acting in that which is going to be positive and healthy instead. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just. He will forgive us our sins. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if this is already true for you, if this is already an issue for you, bring it to Jesus. Notice the word all. Purify us from all. All unrighteousness. Notice that. If this is already an issue, take it to Jesus today. Confess it to Him today. Claim His forgiveness today. And then get back in the light. If we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. So set your hearts on things above, for Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's why Scripture is so important, and worship in a time every day with the Lord, and plugging into the power source, and walking in the light of Jesus, because it's in that light that we have the power that we need to defeat the dark. So let's wrap all of this up, and then we'll come to the Father's Supper together. There's a place in your life, if you're like the rest of us, where you're broken. It's just true for all of us. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. There's something going on in your life you're glad we don't know, right? Something in your life you're glad it's not up on the screen. It doesn't have to be sexual immorality. There's some place in your life where you're not who you wish you were, where you're not the person you really wish you were and the person you think God wants you to be. So you can leave today defeated. You can leave today saying, you know, I just can't get it. I can't fix it. I can't solve it. I can't defeat this. This is just something I'm just going to have to live with. The enemy wants you to do that. The enemy wants you to settle for less than God's best. First of all, he wants you to be defeated. And second, he knows where you are now won't be where you end up. Okay? If you're sliding down the slope, you're not to the bottom yet. And it's really going to hurt when you fall. So you can do that. We can do that. We can leave today, kind of forget what we talked about today, kind of a weird subject in chapel today. We're just going to kind of not think about that and kind of go on back, go watch the Cowboys this afternoon, do whatever you're going to do. That's what the enemy would love you to do. Or you can decide today, I'm going to name it, whatever the it is. I'm going to bring it to Jesus. I'm going to ask him if I need his forgiveness. I'm going to ask him to forgive me. I'm going to ask him to help me do whatever I need to do with this, whether it's covenant eyes on my computer, or it's seeing a counselor, or it's being honest with a friend, or it's getting a different work assignment at my office, or whatever it is. I'm going to ask him to show me and help me take the step toward the light. And then I'm going to double down on walking in that light, on spending time with God every day in his word, on worship, on living biblically, on living in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if that'll be your decision, today's a day of victory. Today's a day of freedom. Today's a day of joy. That's the promise he offers. So how do I know God can do all of that? Because God loves you just that much. God of the universe loves you just that much. Please, please don't think that the stuff in your life that we don't know about 
is unknown to God. You know it's not. But also, please don't think that you've done something God can't forgive. Or that God's waiting till you get it right to love you again. Or God doesn't love you as much as he would have. Or you have to do this stuff so God will love you more. Please don't think that. We're going to take the Father's Supper together today. And to get there, I want to take you back to, in some ways, the most powerful place in all of Israel. I was in Israel just last week, the last two Sundays. I'll be there five times this year. I love taking people to Israel. And in some ways, the most powerful place. Some of you have been there with me to Israel, and you know what's up on the screen. That's called the Garden of Gethsemane. Garden of Gethsemane was a very large area in Jesus' day. It's part of what's called the Mount of Olives because it's the eastern side of the old city of Jerusalem. It's on the western slope of the eastern side, and it's filled with olive trees. And someplace in, that, in those olive trees, there was a private prayer garden. Uh, we don't know that it's specifically this place. This is one of the places that's been reserved for us to go and to use, but someplace in that area. Jesus went there often to pray. So on that Thursday night, Judas has gone out to betray Jesus. He's had this supper with his friends. Now he has to go to the place where Judas can find him so that Judas can betray him, so that he can be arrested, so that he can be tried, and so that the next day he can be crucified. If he turns and runs back to the Galilee, he'll live a natural life. They don't care if he goes back to Galilee. He's no threat up there. So he goes to the one place he knows he can be found under cover of darkness. Has to be at night because the crowds are still in love with Jesus at this point, and they'll rebel if they find out he's been arrested. Has to go to the one time, the one place where he can be arrested so he can die for our sins. And it's in Matthew 26 that Jesus is someplace in this area. And you know the story, how he prays three times. Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Three times. Why? He knew he came to die. Land slain from the foundation of the world. I don't think it was just the physical torture, as horrific as that was. I don't even think it was just the sinfulness of humanity placed on his soul, although we can't imagine what that was like. I think it was that moment when, because of that sinfulness, the father turns from the son, and the son cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for the only time in all of eternity, the father and the son are broken, and the son is alone. And he must die for the sin of all of humanity. And Jesus knew that was what was coming. And he chose anyway for us. When we take groups to the Garden of Gethsemane, and we talk through what Jesus chose there, I always say to them, a week ago I said to our group, please never again wonder if God loves you. Never again wonder if God loves you. And please, in light of today, never again wonder if God can forgive you. Jesus already died for the very sin that you may be struggling with today. Already died for it. Penalty's already paid. Sacrifice is done. Now there's grace. Grace greater than all our sin. And the supper reminds us of that fact. So let's pray. Take this moment, you and the Lord, and if there is a place in your life where our conversation today has been relevant for you, then name it. It may be sexual immorality, maybe some other place of integrity, a place where perhaps you're being tempted right now, or a place where you fall into temptation. Name it. Thank Jesus that he died for the very sin that's on your heart today. He's already paid for it. 
Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to show you in coming days what he would have you do, if anything, to restore you. What proactive step he would have you take to live a life he can bless fully. Ask him to show you that. And thank him for grace greater than all our sins. Father, I thank you that what we saw last night in Glen Rose, Texas really happened in Jerusalem, Israel. Thank you that what we saw enacted with Jesus, betrayal, and scourging, and humiliation, and crucifixion isn't a play, but a reality. Thank you that Jesus did it for us, and he would do it all again just for us. May our lives be changed by that grace today. We pray in Jesus' name. Please continue, if you would.